Hey guys, Dan here. So this episode uh, was seemingly hit with the audio glitch gremlin and we had some issues on several different fronts. Um, I have done what I can to kind of make things a little bit more uh, listenable, So, but we don't want to delete any content here for you guys. So um, enjoy and uh, I'm sorry about some of the small issues. We will have those worked out for next episode. All right, guys, we're talking about dwarves this week. So... Uh, I wanted to ask, if you could create any piece of D&D merch for your own use or to sell, what would it be? Let's let's roll it. Roll for it. Roll again. Yeah. I got well, a I nine. Botched. I botched. Ooh. I I got I got a three. What uh, do you got, I'm bro? going first with a nine. Going first uh, with a nine yeah. there, Brad. I would like to see more custom character sheets. Uh, I think the standard bog character sheet's kind of dull. I would love... I've seen some really amazing ones, but I'll always love to see more. Hmm. So if you, you got would, them, send you them to make me. make your own? What's that? No, no. no I, this is, what would you make? I don't have that artistic bent, but I'd like to see... I mean, I could do something a little more streamlined, but also just with a little flair, depending on the class that you're playing. So today we're talking about dwarves. I'd love to see some stonework around, you know, the boxes and things like that. that oh, just emphasize, or like a character like, sheet that kind of fits your class or your race. Ex- exactly. Class, race, and maybe even your background. Mm, I like it. Yeah, no, that, that's a good answer. I, I'm going second with a freaking three. Um, and for me, I would custom build freaking tables, gaming tables. Oh, oh yeah. I love have, custom I have a tables. lot of ideas about what a DM needs around them at all times. Uh, and I, I see a lot of tables, but not a whole lot of the desk drawers beside the DM to be able to pull minis and books and, and well, I have some good news for you, Adam. You happen to know a furniture maker. Oh, okay. But no, those, you don't want that as part of your uh, DM table. You don't want, you are afraid of what might be integrated. I'm afraid of Dan saying, okay, it's time to address the drawers. (laughs) Because, <laughs> because then he's just taking your underwear. Yeah. Maybe Dan can make us a DM table just going along that vein, but not too much. That's suspended from the roof with chains, but there's no table legs. Ooh. Uh, and it just, like, it just swings? Yeah, well, it doesn't necessarily need to swing. <laughs> we'll try to stop it from swinging, but yeah. And, and I, I think that whenever you roll in that one, the table just naturally knows somehow and screams, <laughs> thank you, it hurts harder. <laughs> oh, I was picturing the chains breaking on a natural one and collapsing in the ground. You gotta buy a new table. <laughs> yeah. Um, Terry, what, what about you? For me, mine's a little bit different in that I'm actually, and this is deliberately so, I'm not very materialistic, and that's because I'm very bingy. So if there's, for example, D&D minis, I must have them all. Dice, I must have them all. So I try and shy away from collecting anything, any kind of merch. Um, so what I like is is non-tangible things. So a, a really good uh, DM masterclass. Have you guys seen those YouTube ads oh, for the masterclasses? Yeah. Yeah. Storytelling, script writing, chef, whatever it is. Uh, a good dungeon master masterclass would, would be what I would like to see. A really high quality one. Do you have anybody in mind you'd like to see teach it? What what did you say? Anybody in mind you'd like to see teach it? Probably me. You'd like to teach it? Otherwise somebody else just takes the the money. (laughs) I still like money. (laughs) Well, I have good news for you, Terry. You have uh, your own podcast to talk about this show. That's true. That's true. That's true. But we need need investors to to really ramp up the budget on this so we can – maybe we can get a YouTube ad and be like Gordon Ramsay and the other directors I've never heard of. Yeah, or we could just get uh, 700 YouTube ads that interrupt every three minutes like every other podcast that I listen <laughs> that, to. That would be fantastic. I'm sure YouTube. the listeners would love that. Fuck. <laughs> 
Welcome to the It's a Mimic podcast with your DMs, Adam, Terry, and Brad. Welcome to another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion, where you never know what you're going to get. I'm Adam, and with me today are Terry and Brad, and today we're talking about dwarves. Are you guys excited about dwarves? Do you like dwarves? Before we dig into it, do you like Dwarves are the best race in the game, and I'll fight anybody over it. <laughs> so will they. Um, they dance I, right? I am now excited by dwarves. I wasn't in my earlier days of playing D&D, but I am now excited about them. If I only played one race for the rest of my D&D career, it would be dwarves. Hands hmm. down. Not even a question. I like dwarves well enough. Um they're they're my go-to basic whenever it's time for a new edition i'm going to start with dwarves and then i'll play halflings for a little bit and then i want to see what weird stuff comes out and whatever player's handbook 2 or xanathars yeah. or volos or like I'm, I'm looking for the weird stuff beyond that but you could definitely have fun you know, with other stuff but a mainstay for me would have to be a dwarf yeah i always i always start with dwarves just because i know what i'm getting into they, they don't surprise me Right, even with elves, because we talked about elves for two episodes, hmm. there were some surprises in there. Yeah, I know a lot of people are always shocked when they hear about how tall an elf is in D anD D because yeah. they're used to Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings, where the elves are tall and, and beautiful, and they're just kind of short and sad. Yeah, in, in yeah, D&D. it's a very different aesthetic. It, it doesn't change it from my mind though. I I do cheat on elves. I still imagine them just as tall as humans, or you know, five ten, five eleven. Um, you know, I. Can't. So it didn't really change it for me. But but when it comes to dwarves, I mean, we're all picturing the four foot ten. Yeah, yeah they're, they're short, they're shorter. stocky, they're bearded. Yeah. yeah. Even the women. Yeah. <laughs> they're not, Brad, though. There's a picture <laughs> in the player's handbook, and she clearly has no beard. I checked. That was one of their younglings. Oh, yeah. sorry. That explains the smaller oh, totally hammer. I'm fucking with you, Terry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, um, what about a smaller hammer? No, nothing. No, they... Dan is not on this episode. We don't have to be uncomfortably sexual about things. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I can so, drop that um, energy. Uh, thank God. Um, so uh, the thing about dwarves that I like is the fact that we know what we're getting into already. It's not um, close, but not quite like elves or even halflings to hobbits. And humans are their own crazy. There's so freaking many of them that... There's no real stereotype you can go with, and I think that's for obvious real-world practical reasons. Yeah. Um, yeah. But for dwarves, I mean, let's let's get into it. I've got uh, – we get a lot of um, – well, not a lot, but a decent amount of information in the player's handbook about dwarves. They get their, you know, couple of pages in the races section, but Mordenkainen's really, really kind of blows that up. Yeah. Um, dwarves are present in a lot of the uh, published modules, and – um, they they even have a decent representation in uh, Sword Coast Adventures Guide, uh, where they talk a little bit more about a couple of other kinds of dwarves that are close to the ones that they talk about in the player's handbook. So, um, let's just jump into it a little bit. Um, dwarves are first and foremost they're short, they're stout, and they are hardy. They've got high endurance. They're not any taller than five feet, and uh, they're incredibly courageous. They have uh, long memories, 
which means that they're going to hold grudges, but they're also going to have fast friends that if they don't see them for 15 years, it, they're still considered a close best friend to them because 15 years is nothing in the lifespan of a dwarf because uh, they can live up to like 400 years. They are all about uh, legacy and their own longevity and the idea that uh, what they can build with their hands, what they create themselves is what they uh, is what they pass on to the next uh, generation. This is their legacy. A lot of people feel affection towards children and family, and dwarves do too. But it's a different kind of affection. They they see they see their family as like spouses are um, uh, co creators with them, and there are and their children are like. Um, like the things that they have crafted, the, the materials that they are proud of. It's not the same kind of kinship that elves feel with their children or even humans or, or other intelligent races. They're, they're very um, pragmatic, I guess, because yeah, they come from their, their god, um, Mordrin, who is their all father. And mm-hmm. he created them in his forge and he uh, laid them out to, uh, to follow on with his work. He didn't give them the same gifts that he has, but he gave them determination and endurance to be able to craft and seek perfection with their, their uh, metal work, their gem work, their stone work. They're all about delving into mountains and getting those precious metals and creating the most intricate and beautiful uh, pieces that they can. It's not about nature. It's not about, um, artistry, although there's definitely an artistry to what they're creating, but they're not painting, right? No. They're not, there's, there are no great dwarven plays. Um, <laughs> they're, the, the dwarven plays are, are like Ted talks on, on how to, uh, on how to craft with, yeah. with silver, <laughs> right? Informative. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's no time for fun. <laughs> the, 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 these two dwarves are standing on top of each other. They're representing the dumb human who is learning. <laughs> From the from the blacksmith, yeah, right? Exactly. And, and it's just a two man play, and it lasts for four and a half hours. And it's just the the blacksmith telling, no, 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 no. This is the kind of smelting that you would like to do. Yeah, it's like the, it's like a human play, but before the dress rehearsal, when you're they're still blocking, like, and everybody's still holding their scripts. <laughs> like, who's gonna waste time rehearsing? Yeah. Um. So the. Uh, the, the dwarves themselves are loyal. They're um, very courageous, but they're very slow to trust others. They are not... Um, that's what I'm looking for. They're not overly friendly because even other dwarves outside of their clan... Now, their clan is essentially their kingdom, okay? And their clan is... Uh, it has a king or a queen, uh, sometimes both. And mm-hmm. they... Um, they run the area usually inside a stronghold uh, which is built primarily for defense and they don't let just anybody in even their friends from outside whether it be humans or halflings or uh, whoever it is even other dwarves will still not be allowed in certain parts of the stronghold because they really like to be segregated this is mine this is ours and this is where uh, this is where we live, and you're welcome here, but you're very much a guest under my roof. 
Yeah, there's, and I think that plays in with rules, right? They have rules in place, and an outsider won't know the rules, so they have to be limited, right? It's a very structured society, and they can't trust just anybody to uh, stay within their structure. Well, it's, it's not just rules. They're relatively suspicious as well. I mean, they don't like the chaotic nature of elves, and I mean, they think that halflings are nice enough, but they're not courageous at all. There's no, like, famous halfling or, or poems about famous halfling warriors right like you, yeah uh, you have humans but humans are, sh- are so short-lived that yeah. how well can you really know someone in the span of their 40-year lifespan yeah it's an interesting comparison between dwarves and humans right they they really appreciate the ingenuity the adventurousness of humans but the fact that they're not going to live long they don't really want to build a bond because what's the point they're going to be gone and in a blink of an eye and then That'll be that. Yeah, I kind of see it as the fact that of not of, of limiting where outsiders come in, I th- I think speaks to their loyalty with each other as well. So I mean, you as an outsider, that one dwarf may say, "Hey, look, I know you," but the other three hundred people here do not know you, and out of respect for that, I can't let you into their area. It it kind of like I see it as a as a a loyalty and a respect that they have for their own kin, and that you know if everybody mm-hmm. else does not know you, I shouldn't let you in here. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, they really are all about the the clan first. Well, they're about they're about Mordrin and their pantheon first, then their own personal accomplishments, then their clan, right? And that seems to be the order they go into. They've got these familial structures. I mean, the elders are seen as as teachers that have to be followed. Their spouses, like I said, are considered you know co creators. They don't fall in love the way that that the average um, human or half elf or halfling falls in love. There's like I'm sure that they've got poetry the way that Klingons have opera. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> it's there, but it's it's kind of brutal. Yeah. Um, well, there's a pragmatism uh, even in the relationships. I feel right. Oh, 100. A, a, par- a partner's chosen I, because they can be. You know, there's an advantage to it. It's not just about the emotion of it. It's about the pragmatism. Yeah, yeah, and and the, I would say that, I I would see that there would be arranged marriages, or at mm. least, like, there's, like, a courting section, or, like, ceremony, where a bunch of different eligible bachelors and, and bachelorettes all get together, and they're, like, looking at each other, and they're just holding up, look at what I've crafted, do you like this, do you see this, <laughs> looking for someone good with rubies, and then this over here, I've, 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 I see a lot of silver, I'm who, who can work with topaz? Right. And like, I feel like that's, that, that's how they decide I, their marriage. I want to circle back a little bit on your arranged marriages as well. I can see them also using marriage to establish power and to establish governance and to establish, you know, a level within the family. Well, it's funny because they, there's not really a whole lot of um, diplomatic intrigue with dwarves the way that there are with elves, especially drow. Right with dwarves, you have your king or your queen of your clan, and you follow them because you are part of this clan and that is your job. If you betray your clan, that is the worst thing that you can possibly do. Absolutely, but I could, that, I could see a marriage being used to bring clans together. Let's say that two two kings from separate clans have decided that they're going to work together to form this new mine because they realize it'll be advantageous. And I can see them marrying their children together simply to establish that well because it's, it's uh, such... basically a marriage bond is just an additional bond on top of what dwarves are already making 
right? Their word is good. And so you put a marriage on that as well. I imagine their divorce rates are pretty low. <laughs> um, I'm curious to see what the divorce court in, in Dwarven society looks like. <laughs> like do, do you think, like, I, uh, God damn it, she, she now owns half of my beard. <laughs> but I own half of hers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, no, I, I, it's interesting that you say that because I would agree with you to a point because it says, it talks about it in Mordenkainen's um, that it is a, it's a very, there's a very big sense of loss when uh, two dwarves move out and start their own family, even within a clan, because it's like your prized possession that you spent years crafting is now gone and lost to you. They don't, they don't have the same respect for lineage that things that, that races like elves and, and humans do, right. Where we very much are about, um, about the lineage, except for those that can trace their bloodline back to, um, back to the first dwarves that were created by Mordred. Those are considered the noble families. Everything else is is really just, is this the best thing for the clan? It's, it's pragmatic for us to do this. Uh, we can make the greatest um, items here. But I don't feel like you're moving upward in Dwarven status or society. Because everyone in this clan is as, as powerful as the reputation of the clan. Yeah, they're definitely not... If, they don't have castes, right? They're not really... Uh... There's not many levels. You've got your king, obviously, who rules overall, and he'll probably have his court of lords. But really, they're almost commun. Well, I mean, they're not communists because they don't share everything in the same way. But in a way, they do. Well, right? what's strange yeah, I- about them as well is that they're they're they have pride, but there isn't arrogance like there is like elves are accused of like for example they have all of this incredible engineering and craftsmanship that they do and and it's you know they're so proud of it it's the most incredible thing they've ever made but for an outsider to come and view that is ridiculous like no you can't see it it exists it's phenomenal but you can't come in you know they don't they don't care about showing it off it's just they just they're just proud of what they've achieved yeah Yeah, they'll get drunk and they'll talk for 45 minutes and describe it (laughs) but you can't even see it (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're not welcome in my home to, to, to see that, right? Yeah. It's yeah. on display in my trophy case. Trust me, it's awesome. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. And the other dwarves might see it, as long as they're close enough, but uh, no way an outsider's seeing it. Yeah. So, I, I, I see what you're saying about there being marriages between clans for a strengthening of, of the clans or to work a specific gold mine or whatnot, and I think that it would be if they were forced to uh, cohabitate then maybe. Yeah. Right? Then uh, if it was a matter of survival, like the two clans need to come together because we want to have, um, we want to get into these these mountains with these riches, but the whole area is just swarming with stone giants and we can't do it by ourselves. So we're all going to go in, we're going to make a stronghold. And while they do it, the clans start to intermingle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I don't believe that they've got the the courtship rules or the ideas of of standing up and, and these are the nobles and we marry noble houses together. No, they're nobles because their bloodline traces back to Mordrin. They don't need anything more than that. Yeah. They don't need to be king. They're they're gonna they're still doing their job. The noble is just another thing for them to be proud of. Yeah. And so uh, like they're very stubborn. 
that's that's like pride is one side of it courage is another but stubborn they are so so thoroughly rigid in their outlook on life and it's it's like a, a basic part of the dwarven psyche to the point where it's even like like if they're stubborn to a fault this can get them in quite a bit of trouble sometimes and they their way of thinking creates real difficulty between some of the other races because they don't like how short-lived some of them are or how um or how chaotic they are i mean dwarves are lawful right yes, we haven't said that nature. yet but they, they are yeah. so thoroughly lawful because mordron was lawful and we are lawful and and that's it that's the only reason that they need beyond it they're not big explorers except to go find the next materials that they need down into the mountain depths right yeah yeah no they're very they have a code they follow it they don't they don't change their minds easily like you said with the stubbornness once they've made their mind up it's because they've thought it through they believe it and they're sticking to it and it's gonna take a lot to change a dwarf's mind it's gonna take some serious evidence uh, they're not emotion. They don't have emotional swings that are going to swing, you know, their behaviors in the same way that a human or an elf even would. Yeah. So when when we're talking about dwarves as a general rule and being a player character, we're talking about for the most part being an adventurer, and that's one of the three basic functions of of dwarven life. Um, you can really fall into three general kinds of dwarves. One is the support of the community, which is your, you know, your brewers and your tending crops and, and kind of the domestic side of things and like your shopkeepers and your merchants and, and that the second one, which is equally large is those who are, whose occupations are about crafting, right? Smelting, smithing, gem cutting, sculpture, things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. A lot of masonry and stonework. And the last one is um, I almost like ambassadors to the outside world beyond the stronghold. Because a dwarven stronghold is a key part of their life. Yes. If the stronghold falls, it's very likely the clan is going to falter and and disappear. And it's not like they just go make smaller clans somewhere else. They will go out into the world and be lost and yearn for their home and not be able to get it back they will consistently try to get it back if a dragon displaces them they will try to go back and get it but because most of them are smiths they're they're crafters of some sort or they're they're based around building a community they can blend into multicultural societies really well but they're not warriors the average the average dwarf is not they're hardy they have endurance you don't want to fight one but they're not trained military warriors as a general rule. No, and I mean you'll find them in communities all around whatever world you may be building. Um they're they're dispersed fairly well and a lot of those yeah will be displaced clans, right? Or yes, adventurers I, I, who decided just not to return for some reason. Yeah. Um I guess there is also the small group that is considered um the leadership whether they're they're nobles or the the royalty um and when they take their leadership role, they've been groomed almost like they've been crafted themselves to become a leader and to have strong interpersonal relationships and uh, interpersonal skills. Mm-hmm. But still stubborn. But uh, oh, they're very stubborn because 
they're they're there to to better the clan. It'd be like right? a whole room if you had a meeting of your elder dwarvish elders. It'd be a whole room of you and Dan and everybody like you guys just arguing because you're sticking to your guns. Are you implying that Terry just wish washes? Is that what you're saying, Brad? <laughs> <laughs> Terry's a little more elvish. You and Dan certainly uh, fill that dwarven space headspace. I'm very flexible. Flexible. Not, that's that's the right physically. word. And that's not just because of your uh, workout routine. No, it's because I'm Pisces. <laughs> You're Bruce a fish. Lee said, Bruce Lee said, be like water. Adapt. Flow. Crash. So <laughs> Terry became a sea elf. <laughs> I'm a sea elf, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, where would you put the uh, clergy? Because dwarves are fairly religious. I don't know if we're going to get to that soon, but... They, they are. Um, and there's a certain amount of that. I would say that's definitely part of the leadership yeah. role, right? Um, a large part of it is going to be community service that, that they do. So there's mm-hmm. the community side of things. But it's very based on, in the leadership. While they are religious and stereotypically they are divine casters. Yes. That is the stereotype about them. Um, I have no problem with a dwarven wizard. No, I, I very much see wizard and dwarf being married closely. Um, and and we, can, we can get into different kinds of dwarves and whatnot, and why some will lean in one direction, some will lean in others. But for the most part, I mean, the, the stereotype is a dwarven cleric. Yeah. Right. Um. You can see you see a lot of dwarven fighters. You see the occasional dwarven ranger. I can imagine a lot of dwarven barbarians exist out there, um, but you don't picture a whole lot of dwarven monks or dwarven bards. Mm. Even a dwarf rogue is probably rare, and yeah. and we'll get in we'll get into the stat bonuses and whatnot in, sure. in a minute. I want to talk I want to talk for a sec about strongholds. Mm-hmm. Let's dig into it. There. Their strongholds are really castles built into the sides of mountains. When you come upon a dwarven stronghold, you see walls built out from the side of the mountain uh, that are strong. They are made of stone. They are tall. They are thick. And they are broad. There are massive stone uh, doors and uh, probably a lot of metalwork involved as well. And you can imagine some turrets, but... The back half, there is no back half of the wall. You can't sneak up on the stronghold because the back half of it goes into the mountain itself. Most of these, or or their hill, but like whatever they're, wherever they have decided to to mine, where, where are they getting their materials from? Yeah, it's kind of like an iceberg, right? Whatever you see on the outside, on the face of the mountain or the hill or the cliff face, you know that it's way deeper below into the mountain. Yeah. And, and there are a couple of things about it that people should be aware of. Adventurers probably have heard. These things are considered to be um, monuments to the, the clan itself, as well as the previous, their ancestors, and probably their gods as well. You're going to see a lot of statues and a lot of grand dwarven architecture. Even when you come from the outside, you're also going to find, um, if you're lucky... You'll find that they have all sorts of weird hidden entrances and exits all over the place because they're really good at hiding um, and and working with stone so that they can make it look very natural. They Mm -hmm. can create doors that don't look like doors. No, you'd have to stand right up on them before you would even notice them. And even then you'd have to be looking closely. Yeah, because it's all about defense. Yeah. 
right? That's what this is. This is about them defending what is theirs. They don't hoard like a dragon or even like a goblin, but they do respect that this is my property, that over there is your property, and we will trade what is fair for it. Yeah, if now I mean, you say you they're not like a goblin or a dragon, but they will fight fiercely to defend, <laughs> at, like a dragon would, to defend their property. They may not hoard it the same way, but they are just as fierce in defending their hoard, for less of a better word, whatever they've collected and created. Yeah, because their their stronghold is their, their stable way of life, right? And they have spent a lot of time on the inside making it beautiful. Yeah, I, in, in my head, it glimmers like... um. Like, when you go into... You, you guys remember Lord of the Rings, right? And they're in the, mm-hmm. the Mines of Moria and whatnot. And they have that giant room. You see them, and they're all really tiny. And they're all of these massive columns that go up to this oh, ridiculous yeah. height yeah. as they're running through. And in my head, that's not D&D dwarves because there's not enough sparkling fucking gems. And every one of these, these pillars, these columns, should be uh, a dwarven god or hero. Oh yeah, no, these carved are in that's holding they're the decorated, right? right? They're they're works of art in and of themselves. Every single support pillar would be a work of art. Yeah, and so there's there's more to it. Like this is where the pride that, that Terry mentioned comes into play here. But no, I, I really do expect there to be these um these more intense or, or intensely carved and, and beautifully wrought pieces of of architecture around that's not just look at this column it has vertical lines i mean you've got 400 years you can take your time to really craft something out of even the most mundane piece of architecture or structural support or whatever it may be yeah and there are a lot of uh, of dwarves that are working together this is for the good of the clan absolutely this is for our own majesty of this and so everybody's going to work together you're right it's it's not quite communism but it there's definitely like a yeah, the, the wealth well, like, is not uh, split equally, but it is all for the good of the other, right? The, the greater good. Yes. Yeah, no dwarf is really putting themselves ahead of the rest of the clan. Stereotypically speaking, of course. Terry, do you have any thoughts before we move on? No, lots of stuff. I, I mean, it, I didn't want to like interrupt too much because I know like you were, you were talking about the history and things, but not not just yet. I kind of want to. I do have some ideas for when we get to talking about using them as players and DMs. Uh, but they're they're truly fascinating. They're just so so secretive. And you're right. I think when you made the Lord of the Rings reference, that's correct. Is is the strongholds there? Like Moria, for example, seems so cold and like uninviting, but I don't think a dwarven stronghold is like that because they're so proud of what they can create. I know they don't show it off to outsiders, but the place that they live, that they spend their 400 years, um, I think would be very highly decorated and would be essentially just be a walking work of art everywhere you went. Yeah, I mean, Moria is not the best example either, right? That's a fall... In fact, I think that is a good example because it's a fallen Dwarven stronghold, right? It's been abandoned for uh, generations. Yeah, but there was no real sense. I mean, you saw it in little bits and pieces. The grand architecture was look at how many stairs we have. Yeah. Look at how tall these columns are. Yeah. That Whereas in D&D, I feel like their architecture is, look, we turned this mountain into the head of a dwarf. We're talking, it's more Mount Rushmore than the Washington Monument. Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. There's going to be monuments and statues and, yeah, pillars yeah. everywhere. So, 
Um, let's jump into who they're uh, who they're making statues of for the most part. Uh, first and foremost, there's Mordrin, right? He is the All Father, and he uh, crafted the dwarves. They say from metal and gems, and then imbued them with the souls uh, as he cooled them with his breath, which is pretty badass. That's yeah. I also like the idea of there being one big hairy god that's just given mouth to mouth to a bunch of statues. Um, he really does expect his children to follow in his footsteps and he wants them to aspire to match his expertise in crafting. The priests of, uh, Mordren are the ones that they judge and they assess the work of the strongholds artisans. So they're almost like your foreman. Yeah. Um, and they keep incredible details uh, written down about different crafting techniques, and they're the ones that implement the guidelines and and how what what techniques do we judge by, and what is the overall individual worth of this job. And they're also the ones that evaluate young dwarves to determine whether or not they're going to be crafters or merchants or warriors, and the decisions of the priests are. Not questioned. They are 100% uh, followed as law. This is like this almost the sorting hat from uh, mm-hmm. Harry Potter, right? Yeah, I can see that. So so the the those are the priests of Mordrin. Now there are a shit ton of these of these dwarven gods. Yeah. I'm looking at them now and I'm one, two, three, hold on, two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen, twenty. There are twenty of them listed. Yeah. We'll do an episode on the Dwarven Pantheon someday, but the Excellent. only other one that we should really focus on is uh, Abathor. Yes. Who is he's the flip side. He is the master of greed. And there's a duality to him because he does not he does not craft. He has no skill in crafting. Instead, he is a thief and yeah. he takes ownership of what he wants. Mm-hmm. He is the one that fills the dwarven society, all the dwarves, with greed. But he is also like, it's almost like they they begrudgingly acknowledge how amazing he is. Because he is responsible for bringing them new techniques and new ways of, of um, implementing dwarven technology and, and artisan techniques tricks and tools any new piece of information any new discovery is given to to abathar he's the one that they say uh, it must be him that that gives us this yeah right so um he's all about trickery Mm -hmm. he's all about greed but they do admit that there's a place for that yeah yeah it's something we kind of didn't touch on with the characteristics of dwarves but they can actually be driven mad by their desire for these gems Right, they they do des- they have this deep desire for all things shiny, and it can uh, drive them mad. Well, for the most part, that's kind of a general stereotype. That's a holdover from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Uh, even right? in, the idea, even within the, the uh, player's handbook itself, it mentions uh, the way that they can become. I'll have to find it again. As remember reading that. They look. Yes, they can definitely become uh, obsessed for short periods of time. But there's a subsection of dwarf, the Duragar, who went absolutely yes. mad with this. And I'll talk about the Duragar 
uh, a little bit later. But they do focus, if they can focus on clan and family structure and their own pride in in creating their own works, then there's not really a... Uh, there's not really any need for them to go mad with this. It's not until they're presented with a massive horde that is within their reach to get that would make all of their clan and their works that much better. Right. So there's, there can be a sense of greed to them. I think that they're going to be the first one into the treasure room Mm -hmm. and the last one to leave. Yeah. But they're not, they're not just taking general treasure either. I mean, they'll take gems and things like that, but they're looking for, you know, if they're in a dragon's horde, they're looking for weapons that were masterfully crafted. In fact, they might even be on the hunt, right, for a weapon that was lost by their clan generations ago. Yeah, they're and yes, they they will be the ones that go in and and mess with with dragons and try to get the hordes. Well, let's talk about dragons actually, but but remember, they're not stupid. No, dwarves are very much going to realize that they can fight again tomorrow. Live today, fight tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? And so they're not going to pick fights based on greed. And if they do, they they will probably win a lot of the time. They're not going to go and be stupid about things. No, they're not going in not, unprepared. Yeah, this is not the gnome tinkerer who just wanders into the alchemy lab and says, what happens when I mix this with this? And then blows up half the town, yeah. right? They're very much, they're because they're so pragmatic, they can weigh the risks and know when they are overreaching their, their abilities. So they have very specific enemies though. uh, And those are dragons and giants. Orcs and goblins as well. Yeah. But as much as they dislike orcs and goblins, look, um, orc tribes love messing with dwarven strongholds and, and taking them over. Um, and the orcs seem to actually receive omens from, uh, Grumsh to tell them how to do that. So the dwarves are consistently threatened by orcs, but the dwarves can usually battle them back while they will lose a clan to, to a orc tribe. Occasionally it's not, it's not the same. Yeah. It'll usually just be due to being so outnumbered more than anything else. Yeah, and it's the same with with goblins as well because these are hordes. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the big three, dwarves really they can't stand dragons, they can't stand giants, and they can't stand Duragar. Mm. Let, let's let's look at dragons. They really only talk in Mordenkainen's about there being five, um, the five evil like the chromatic dragons that they will actually fight with, and mm-hmm. um, they outline it. Black dragons are rarely in the same environment as dwarves because black dragons are in swamps yeah, and therefore they don't really interact that often, but black dragons can interrupt supply lines. Mm-hmm. And when a stronghold becomes cut off, then uh, a dragon might begin testing its defenses at which point the dwarves will go to war. Blue dragons uh, tend not to deal with dwarves at all because they're out in the desert and there are not a whole lot of dwarves out in the desert. They just don't run into each other very often. Green dragons, again, they don't interact very often. I mean, they're in forests. There will occasionally be the same um, the same kind of issue that you ran into with the black dragons, 
But the dwarves may not even know what happened because the green dragons are so devious. They're so full of deception that the dwarves may just think that they have, uh, that they've been, uh, tricked by someone or this was bad luck. Um, or maybe a green dragon wants, uh, these big carved out strongholds for themselves. And so they will trick and deceive the dwarves into coming out for some, for some reason. So, Dwarves don't trust outsiders, and I think green dragons are one of the main reasons why. Yeah. Red dragons, um, they compete for the same uh, homes for the most part, because red dragons like the mountains. Even hill dwarves live in the foothills of mountains, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But red dragon lairs and dwarven strongholds are far enough apart because, frankly, they've already skirmished throughout history because they're all so long lived. These battles happened a long time ago. And so you could talk about ancestral homes, but there are very few red dragons just moving into dwarven territory and vice versa. They know where they are. Yeah. Right. And so they're not going to, uh, they're not going to cross paths. Even a red dragon is going to send out minions to test every once in a while to see what are the dwarves up to? Oh, they're still strong enough. Okay. Well, I'll wait another 300 years and try them again. Yeah. Right. Let someone else Um, take them down a peg. Yeah. And the one that they do run into fairly frequently are white dragons because the dwarves who live in, in the colder climates um, are looking for, I mean, it's all ice, right? Mm -hmm. Except for the mountain ranges. So they're going to, they're going to be heading to the same general locations. They will fight white dragons are not, particularly intelligent and are just as stubborn as dwarves are. So they will, they will go toe to toe or ax to teeth as the case may be. Um, and, and they will have their fights. I can see white dragons moving in. I, I can see you going to a dwarven stronghold up in the North and discovering a bunch of frozen dwarf corpses all over the place at put on display with a white dragon inside the throne room slumbering on top of all of their their shiny pretty wondrous things i can see it the other way too if uh, the dwarves take down a white dragon right if they've got a strong enough stronghold the white dragon makes its move and they manage to fend it off kill it i can see them hanging that skull in the center as you walk in the front doors hanging from the ceiling yeah uh, maybe as a warning for for another for future Exactly, yeah. Look look at our might. We were able to defeat this. Don't think you can stop us. Terry, you're a resident dragon expert. Any thoughts on this? (laughs) On dragons and and the home? I think red dragons make sense uh, that they would be in a similar environment. I think you're correct in that they're they're probably not going to war with each other too often because uh, a red dragon is never going to risk giving up power. And the and the dwarves are not arrogant enough to to need to take more territory as long as they have where they live already they're happy with that they're proud of that um, I think it makes sense for white dragons as well because white dragons are natural hunters um, and so they they're going to be competing for the same 
food. You know, even dwarves will have to leave, leave at some point to go and, you know, hunt for deer or whatever. Um, so I think they're much more likely to run into the, to run into the white dragons. I can see green dragons as well because, you know, where there's mountains, there's foothills, there's forests. So they, they may cross over every now and again, but I think you were correct in that they, they may not realize that they're dealing with the green dragon per se because of their cunning sort of nature. Um, but I just, I, I don't see blues getting in the way very often uh and uh and definitely not blacks uh but the, what we didn't mention there was it was the metallic dragons where they may find some sort of alliance with them as well and they're going to share information with with these dragons uh, providing there isn't some sort of personal uh beef going on and so that's going to keep them in the loop as what's going on with the chromatic dragons as well because i'm sure there's there's a lot of intrigue between the metallics and the uh, and the chromatic dragons and uh and, and dwarves do make allies particularly hill hill dwarves they'll make allies mm-hmm yeah, the other thing, too, that I like is the idea of there being a gold dragon that aligns with gold dwarves, right? Yeah. Or there's a silver dragon that has decided to become a dwarf. Everyone knows that he's a dragon, but he's become a part of the society and he walks amongst it because he can shape change. Yeah. Hmm. Right? And I so, can see, totally see that. Um, yeah. But some of the people that, that can't shape change and get into the dwarven halls and into the strongholds are giants. Mm. And as much as giants don't really have... Any specific hatred for dwarves, not the way that the orcs do, um, not the way that the Duragar do, um, giants do see them as being, you know, food, because every everything is, um, but also primarily um, fire giants and hill giants will enslave them and, and make them workers. Mm-hmm. Now, dwarves, you can imagine dwarven pride. When you become enslaved, that is... That is a real slight, and that weakens your clan um, and your clan's reputation. That weakens your own personal pride. Everything about and anything you craft will be used by these hulking brutes and probably destroyed in time. But at the same time, you don't want to make garbage because you still have pride in your work. Yeah, so like the idea of there being fire giants are bad enough because they're evil and they're smart and they're going to be able to to make you craft work in the heart of a volcano, smithing and crafting weaponry and whatnot. But hill giants, which are so dumb, they just happen to be in the same region as dwarves. And they know that if they, because they're so much larger, they can bully a dwarf into doing what they want. They will just kidnap and, and enslave them as a worker for as long as they can. And then probably the, the dwarf will be able to escape or they will just accidentally murder the dwarf and then, then eat them. Right. Mm-hmm. Like there's, there's gotta be a special hatred between hill giants and the dwarves in their hills. So is there, is there anything else that we really want to touch on before we, we move on to their, to their stats? Uh, a little fun fact thing. Dwarves hate water. Um, you won't generally find them <laughs> on the sea. Yes. Yeah, you are absolutely right. Dwarves, um, they don't want to go anywhere near water. I assume that they also don't like to ride horses. I no. can see them on on smaller squat animals, donkeys. and I picture them on like mountain a, goats. Yeah, that's actually kind of badass. On like a, on like a dire ram. Yeah, something um, like that. Mountain goats is good, because imagine how quickly they could uh, traverse across their own countryside there with mountain goats. Mm-hmm. I mean, dwarves I are that. very... People don't... I don't think we really note this that much, but when it comes to a mountain environment, dwarves are actually fairly uh, light of foot. They can traverse the mountains very quickly, very quietly. 
Um, we think of them as stout and clumsy and not very dexterous, but there's certainly a case to be made, especially within the mountains. If you had a dwarven ranger, they would find their mm-hmm. way through those mountains quietly. They'd know all the secret back paths. They would be pretty sure on their feet when it comes to climbing up a stiff rock or a steep rock face. Yeah, it's interesting because when you talk about rangers, everyone tends to go to elves first. But I can very much see a ranger or a, a druid because they're they're divine. Yes. Right? And dwarves are all about the gods' gifts to them. Um, I, and I can see them working through the nature of their own environment and saying, hey, you know what? I can lead you through these back mountain paths. I, I know every rock on the face of this mountain. Mm-hmm. Right, and they they be like a dwarven ranger is essentially a sherpa. Yes, yeah, I I like the, I like to view it particularly dwarven ranger with with a an engineering mindset as well. You know, there needs to be pathfinders for where they build their strongholds, for where they decide where they're going to put their entrances and their tunnels, and so they need there. There's going to be the first dwarf or group of dwarfs that traverses those mountains, that finds these locations, that decides this is the strongest part of the mountain. This is where we should put this tunnel. This is where we should do whatever. So I kind of see these uh, these rangers not like the typical kind of uh, cabbage slipper wearing elf rangers no but yeah. more of engineers you know that they're kind of crossing these difficult terrains for the first time for their clan yeah i mean we're gonna touch on the underdark as well i believe them in a little bit but i mean they know their way around down there right they're used to going under the mountains and caving diving deep into the caves those are rangers those aren't your standard dwarves right these are special Especially yeah, these equipped. are not your your gem cutters or your jewel no. smiths or or any of that. Yeah, right. These, these are going to be your your adventuring, um, maybe even exiled dwarves as well. Like when when a clan collapses, uh, and there there can be civil war. Uh, one of the biggest threats mm-hmm. to dwarven society is infighting. Right. Um, I mean, Abathor's, they are stubborn. Yeah, you get people with different opinions. Yeah, Abathor's influence is really gonna mm-hmm. really gonna hold sway over some people and um so there can be a clan that just half of them leave and they end up living their life in exile trying to establish a new clan or or whatever if a if a stronghold falls it does tend to scatter dwarves to the wind if they end up together in small communities they'll try to rebuild a small semblance of their life i can imagine you know like your downtown has chinatown and little Mm. italy i assume that there's dwarven town Oh, for sure. You know, oh, I like that idea. I do do like that idea. So all the buildings are a little bit closer together. It feels a little claustrophobic. None of the ceilings are quite tall enough. Yeah, like Mm -hmm. I I like the idea of of there being a little a little dwarven town. Yeah, you you go sit in a table at a at one of the bars, and it's just a little. You're you're sitting just a little far too far down. The table doesn't come quite high enough on your chest. Yeah, yeah. Have you guys ever been in in older buildings? And I mean, like a couple hundred years old. Um, I, my grandparents uh, lived on the east coast of Canada, and and my grandfather actually built the house that that he lived in, um, that my mom was raised in. And uh, it's funny because people, they talk now about oh, people are bigger now and they're taller now, and it wasn't that long ago that people were smaller and shorter. And mm-hmm. walking through the hallways. Because he built it to what they needed, yep. right? And walking through those hallways, it was it's smaller. It felt smaller. I felt bigger in this area than I yeah, did in Yeah, I had the same thing home. with my wife's grandfather built a house for his mom. 
over and on the island. It's the same thing. Every time you walk in there, you go down the stairwell and you have to duck when you get to the bottom of the stairs and yeah, everything. Yeah, just and a all narrower. of the stairs are are narrower. Yes, as well. Like, yeah, the steps your, your are closer are together. Larger. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I feel like that would what that's what it is like when you're walking through a dwarven stronghold or, or in through dwarf town. Absolutely. Right? Um, so the uh, I guess the last little thing that we should mention is dwarves love their drink. I don't think this is a surprise to anyone. Dwarves like ale. Yes. Do we need to... Uh, not every dwarf is a drunk. People love to play drunken dwarves. Yeah, I think that's a stereotype that's a little outplayed. But yeah, to enjoy... And I, yeah, I don't think they drink water. No, I, I I think that they drink water by necessity. Yeah. Right, and, and that's it. But they would much rather drink ale or mead or lager or, or whatever it is. Not Bud Light. <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, we said they only Terry? drink water out of necessity, so. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, what what is a dwarf's favorite kind of beer? Actually, let's roll initiative. <laughs> I got an 18. I got, I got a 15. I got a 2. Okay, well, I asked Terry first, and then he's going last. This is typical. Um, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. Uh, I rolled an 18. Uh, honestly, I can only picture them drinking Guinness. <laughs> Just a stout. Yeah, I, I was going to yeah, say, yeah, as stout as well. That's, I mean, that's what I picture them. I mean, maybe they're really into the artisanal IPAs. Oh. No, no, that is an elven drink. <laughs> no. Craft beers for elves. That's it's right. Dirty, I don't know. No, I, I see them drinking your stouts and your ports orders and things like see, that. I can't see a dwarf drinking a mass-produced drink. I think they would have artisanal drinks. I think that makes I, perfect sense. I'm not talking like right, mustard. Though. I'm not talking mustard sweaters and toques in July. But I mean, like, uh, <laughs> like I think definitely they, do take, they oh, definitely take pride in the crafting of the beer. Hold on, small for for the American listeners. Um, a toque is a beanie. Fuck. Is that what a toque is a toque. A beanie is a toque. Get it right. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, America. Um, uh, I don't know why we're apologizing to you, but uh, yes. Uh, anyway, like artisanal beer, uh, is, I think is definitely very dwarf-like. Uh, I don't think in the fantastical world of D&D, we've got a lot. I don't know if we have carbonation, so I don't know if it'll be a fizzy beer. So probably something like a, yeah, a stout or something. Yeah. Oh, I imagine they like a good chocolate porter. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I like it. Do you picture because they're underground so much? Th- it must be vodka too, right? Like they're they're eating root vegetables. They've made vodka. Yeah, I think there's, that's fair. There's got to be a distillery down there for sure. Like my backup, if I don't want to do the Scottish voice stereotype for dwarves, my backup is Russian. Yes, yes, Russian, one hundred percent. Dan's is Russian too, but it ends up being Jamaican if you give him long enough. Yeah, <laughs> long oh, but that's only for one session. The next session, it'll be uh, South American, <laughs> and somehow Icelandic. Actually, Icelandic dwarf. No, I, I'm digging that now. Dan does a phenomenal you, oh, Icelandic accent. Or a, a Swedish dwarf. I, I, you know what? I could see a lot of like Norse dwarf. I mean, there's a lot of uh, of parallels there as well. When you're thinking about a dwarf aesthetic, you're thinking about, you know, the fur cloak um, or cape and the the Viking helmet. Like that makes a lot of hell. You look at that horrible, shitty Dungeons and Dragon movies. Yeah, the one from the from two thousand. I am so glad that you brought that up because I promised myself I would not be the one to bring up Norse mythology in this episode, but. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm ready to go down this rabbit hole. It Let's seems do to it. make sense. I mean, well, Sven, Sven is a very dwarf-like name, if you ask me. Well, yeah, it's it's funny that they have such um, such direct contact with the giants, but there's not a base animosity because these are the two big um, Norse mythology creatures, as far as D and D is concerned. Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's the giants and the uh, and the dwarves. Mm-hmm. When you look at the runes for either of them, you can see the the Norse um, mythology behind it. Mm-hmm. But again. Dwarves are not going to be on on wooden ships shaped like dragons. That's right. No. They're not Vikings. They're not Vikings. Right? But yeah, my love for Norse mythology into my D and D is well documented on this podcast, so I won't tread that road again. But absolutely, I I very much tie dwarves to Norse mythology. All right, so let's get into some of their uh, their traits i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about the base dwarven traits and then we'll cut to a commercial and we'll come back and talk about the sub races and what each of them have to offer let's do um, it there's not there's not a whole lot on those but uh no. but let's let's dig in a little bit first of all every dwarf gets a constitution score increased by two that makes perfect sense not only for their durability and their endurance and their ability to work with stone and gems but also their love of the drink yeah, you're living um, underground. The, you have to be pretty hardy. Yeah, um, they are considered children until they reach the age of fifty, and on average, they live to be about three hundred and fifty years old. But they can get as old as four hundred. Yeah, they're almost entirely lawful, um, and they believe in fair play, and that everyone deserves uh, to share in the benefits of a just order. That kind of ties into that not communist, but communist. Dwarves, uh, they stand between four and five feet tall, which I could I could argue that that's small sized, except they weigh about 150 pounds on average. They're pretty beefy, broad shouldered. Uh, yeah. By weight class, they're medium sized creatures. By If you were to take cubic inches of flesh, they're going to be medium sized. Yeah, and yeah, I see be- these uh, I know there's the, the typical thing we say in, in, in our world, we know we say that some people are big boned, but I really do see dwarves as being big boned. I imagine they have massive hands. Like you go yes. to shake a dwarf's hand. And I'm no so sh- glad you said hands. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Dan's not here. He I said, thought we didn't have to make those jokes. But just uh, really, like He said big boned and I thought we were just heading down that. But just really <laughs> like thick, like femurs. Just like, just just thick all over is how I imagine dwarf to be truly big boned. T H I C C. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, my least favorite thing about dwarves is that they've got a base walking speed of twenty five. Yeah, feet. it drives me nuts. It makes kind of makes sense, but I think they should naturally, and they don't have it. They should have some sort of advantage moving through mountainous areas. Statistically, I would like to. Yeah, see I mean. I, I like that they're not taking a speed penalty when because of heavy armor. Yeah. But, I mean, clerics don't get access to heavy armor, so that's really paladins and fighters. But clerics do, it just uh, depending on your subclass. Many of them do. Many of them do, but it doesn't come standard. No. So, But, I mean, if you're um, building a dwarven cleric, you're probably not going for a life cleric. You're probably not going for a I light did. cleric. You could, but... I did. I mean, my life cleric... <laughs> Oh, Bargus. Oh, Bargus. You had such a tragic end. 
Well, when Terry was DMing me, we were doing Curse of Strahd, and we were storming the gates of Castle Ravenloft. <laughs> we're totally off script, by the way. This is not a spoiler alert for the campaign. This is not a spoiler we just alert we for turned Strahd. into tactical war campaign. <laughs> there was three fronts. It was we had to do the thing over two or three sessions, I think. But anyway, yeah. So, so we were hiding back in the in the forest, which had been cut back a hundred meters or a hundred feet, I guess from the front gate and we had, we were held back and it was me and the barbarian and then a whole bunch of werewolves and we were storming the gate and my poor little dwarf could not keep pace oh no he he was sitting there running 25 feet and yep. then buffing the barbarian mm-hmm. and then on the next round he runs 25 feet and he buffs the barbarian and i just kept hitting him with buff spells. It took me four rounds to get to the gate. By the time I got there, the gate had been smashed open and the battle was done. And I'm sitting there out of breath going, okay, all right, point me at the nearest I'm here, zombie. let's get going. Come. Yeah. It, it, I'm ready yeah, for the fight now. And that's true to D&D because we imagine these big epic battles and they are, but in reality, they're over in about 30 seconds. Yeah. Know, where we go by, you know, five rounds and it's done. Uh, it was it was hilarious, but as a player, very frustrating at the time. <laughs> so um, it makes me want to lean in a direction of one of the uh, one of the classes that has an inherent speed bonus, mm. even if it's just long strider from being a ranger, right? Like it makes me want to get something to help with a twenty five foot uh, movement speed because it's it's not a lot. You know, what? I find it, even DMing. Like I, as much as I love dwarves, even when I'm DMing, I often forget when a player is playing a dwarf that they can only move 25 feet. Well, when I create, I mean, here's here's one of my secrets. When I create encounters, I look at what the shortest movement is mm. while still being able to get an action. Right. So if all the characters are on the table, if I've got a, a monk and a rogue and a, and a barbarian and a I don't know, a paladin. The paladin's going to be the slowest with 30 feet. So wherever I put my enemies, I put them on an easy encounter in an, within an increment of 30 feet away. So 30, 60, or 90 feet away. Right. However, if I want it to be a difficult encounter, I'll put them in an increment of 35 feet away. Yeah. You can't get to them not in this round. without. Uh, you're just going to take an extra round of getting attacked by their ranged spells yeah. or whatever it is. So when, it come, when I have a dwarven character then I always have to make the, the basing in increments of 25, hmm. right? So my my battlefields become smaller and the enemies become tighter and closer together, which, as you can imagine, at higher levels, gets complicated when they're using area of effect spells because now the wizard is wiping out seven bad guys instead of five mm-hmm. because my battlefield's smaller. So Everything's shrunk down, yeah. Um, another thing that the dwarves get is, uh, is dark vision. They get it out to 60 feet. Mm-hmm. Um, Who doesn't and, have dark uh, vision? We've been down this road. Uh, Let's not do this again. Yeah, <laughs> Tritons, Tritons, obviously, for some fucking reason. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm still mad about that. That uh, I know Wizards doesn't listen to us, but goddamn it, if they did, fix your shit. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, Dwarven resilience is the next thing, which means you get advantage on saving throws against poison, and you have resistance against poison damage. I feel like this is really overlooked. This is something that I think a lot of dwarven players forget: resistance to poison damage. Just because yeah. you're a dwarf, that's huge. There's a lot of stuff out there that poisons you. Yeah, yep. Poison's a very common 
gets forgotten. It gets forgotten as well. It it makes me there. It reminds me of like honey badgers. You guys ever seen honey badgers on like YouTube or anything? Where they'll get I, uh, they'll get bitten. No, by I them. don't. I don't give a fuck. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, it's been a long isolation. <laughs> Honey badgers will get like <laughs> poisoned by snakes or whatever, and then just like go fall unconscious. Then like two days later, will just wake up and carry on because they're they're just so like annoying. Yeah, tough. they just shake it off, hung over, pick up it. a cup of coffee, that's and exactly go about their day. Yeah. And that's a dwarf right there, just like oh fuck. Yeah, what do you think on. is what do you think is the origin of this? Like, where does this come from? What and who are they fighting underground that generally is doing? Well, I think it's likely, uh, I would argue, due to their uh, their passion for ale and alcohol, they're essentially poisoning themselves all day, every day. It's what's what's a little more poison? They're like, yeah, I'm well accustomed to this. I that would that's my knee jerk reaction as well. But I can make a strong point to say that this comes from the fact that they were crafted from stone with life mm, breathed into right. them. Yeah. If you take their their divine origin, then I could make a strong case for saying that Mordrin just made them hardier. Mm. Yeah. Right? I mean, they've got so, they've already got advantage on constitution and everything like that. I mean, it makes sense, but Yeah. Um, let's see. They've got uh, basic dwarven combat training. And I don't think that every dwarf would get this, but I think the dwarven adventurers would. Yeah. Because of what Mordrin's priest would, would train them in, right? Yeah. You have proficiency with a battle axe, a hand axe, a throwing hammer, and a war hammer. I love hammers on dwarves. Axes are great too for your barbarians, but I have a hard and time making is, a dwarf without a warhammer of some sort. There's just something and about a warhammer, isn't there? There really is. You, it, there Forty really thousand is, of yeah, them. And, and <laughs> shut. Oh fuck. Um, now you're gonna start spelling orc incorrectly. It, it is with a K. Is correct. Oh, no, God. no, it is not. Anyway, <laughs> it's it's with a Q. So Ooh. only in Quebec. Um. Only in Quebec. Um, so, I like this. I often make the mistake. I think I've said it about six times on this podcast. I've said it wrong. That clerics get warhammers. Mm, they don't. Mm-hmm. Dwarves get warhammers. And because dwarves and clerics go hand in hand in my head, yeah. clerics end up with, with warhammers. I, so I have the same when, thing. When, when I read this, I went, that's why I fuck it up. Mm-hmm. So, um, You get a tool proficiency with them. So you get Smith's tools, brewer supplies, or Mason's tools. And I wanted to ask you guys, who's taking the Mason's tools? <laughs> I I could I could see it in uh, if you're going underground, if you know that you're going to have a a campaign where you're gonna be going through a lot of rock tunnels or things like that, I would take them. I think I could justify using those Mason's tools to carve out a path or widen a path. I, yeah, if you want to take, you know, seven days yeah, to do it. Yeah, it's going to take a it. long time. I, yeah. I would say that you could uh, you could walk into a mine where the structure is starting to collapse. And All of these it. supports. Yeah, and so you could reinforce it in this area while you take a long rest. Yeah. Right? So you take half an hour to reinforce the ceiling. Right? The mason's tools would be good for... Um, for fixing up your own stronghold that you guys get, because everybody gets a castle or mm-hmm. a fort or a keep, right? In like tier three, they get their own thing. Here's where your mason's tools come into play. And oh, we have two months of downtime. Okay, cool. I'm going to build a statue of my massive dwarvish dong, right? Like whatever it is, that's when the mason's tools come into into play. The smith tools, everyone's going to try to start crafting 
swords or, yeah, or shoes or whatever. I've been it over is. this. I'm not gonna tread it again, but I hate crafting in fifth edition. There's just yeah. unless you're taking a year of downtime, you're not gonna make anything interesting. Well, I mean, you're you're not wrong. The idea of there being high adventure and high magic in and amongst the common folk is really what fifth ed is supposed to be. We're supposed to be a superhero by level one. Therefore, yeah. if there are 10,000 magic items or, um, you know, there's an army and everybody has a great sword, then you're not special. <laughs> right. So, so I get why they do that, but you're right from a, from a standard player perspective that that can be frustrating. Yeah. You get, uh, you get stone cunning. Whenever you make a history check related to the origin of stonework, you are considered proficient in the history skill, and you add double your proficiency bonus to the check instead of your normal... Pro- when is this ever applicable? Okay, so I know you're going to hate this. I'm going to bring up Pathfinder for just a second. I love the way they do it so much better in that it gives you advantage when you're looking for traps and things within stonework. That makes way more sense to me as an actual useful benefit. This isn't even looking for traps. This is a history check. No, that's what I'm oh. saying. I like the Pathfinder way, way better than I like this. This this falls flat for me. You're never going to use this. I mean, it's a cool role-playing benefit, but you're going to use it like, maybe once or twice in a campaign and then be like, well, that was useless. So I'm not going to do that again. And your DM's going to hate you because now he's going to have to come up with the history of this piece of stone. This is there for flavor. Yeah. Because... The dwarf would feel the dwarven the dwarven race would feel weird without it. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think you're right. It's mechanically, it's ridiculous. That's yeah. what I'm saying. I, I like the way path. I would like to see it having some sort of advantage on you know if you're looking for secret passages on a mountainside or uh, you know a trip plate for a trap within stone. It's Look, yeah, but it's one of those your, things where you, if you got a party of five. And, you know, you most of the time you're all in the same place and it's like, oh, the dwarf goes, oh, can I tell anything about these dwarven tunnels or anything? And then you get the whole, then the bard's going, I too would like to roll a history mm-hmm. check. Like everybody's doing it anyway at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, I don't want to ever bring up that cheap no-name brand knockoff of my Dungeons and Dragons ever again. <laughs> I knew you would hate that, but I just had to mention this it. Is- it's the freaking Kirkland brand D and D. That's what you're dealing with here. I still say they do a good job with the stone cutting. I'll give them credit for that. So, I like sure leave it in there. You're not hurting anybody with it, but no. I mean, who gives a shit? Yeah, nobody's right? picking this uh, this race for stone cutting. No. Ooh, stone cunning. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> for languages, you get to speak, read, and write common and dwarvish. Dwarvish, they say, is full of hard consonants and guttural sounds. And those characteristics spill over into whatever other language a dwarf might speak. So Scottish, Russian, Hebrew, like what what else can we use? German. Is inspiration. Low German. German. Yeah, I mean, German is very harsh, but I always imagine German as being like draconic anyway. So it's it's hard for me to think of it as dwarvish. Yeah, I'm picturing like Mennonite low dwarven or low, low German rather. <laughs> Mennonite German is terrible, I'm just going to say. I lived in Germany for four years, and I don't know what the fuck they think they're speaking there, but it is not <laughs> what they're speaking in Germany. It's like, I, like, I used to work with a Mennonite guy, and he was like, oh, that's exactly good. And I was like, it's there. It's nicht sehr gut. It's not Zaya. Anyway, German rant. 
I could listen to that all day. Yeah, I know. Can we, can we start a uh, Terry's German rants podcast? I, 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 I've never even heard the phrase Mennonite German before, so this is fascinating. <laughs> to but me. saying that, there's, there's our uh, German listeners that'll be going, Terry, what you just said was absolutely terrible. <laughs> but <what's> yeah. <laughs> We'll all stay um, on the call after this, and Terry can tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Um, all right, so the uh, last thing that uh, that we have to go through, then, I guess, is the sub-races. But let's cut to a commercial really briefly first, and then uh, then we can dig into it. Beauty. Hello, everyone. Megan here. If you or a loved one are looking to jazz up your in-game experience with specific 3D printed mini pieces for tabletop furniture, castle walls, trap doors, or other useful items to add to your maps and worlds, well, it's kind of your lucky day. We have actually paired with a local Vancouver business called Diabolical Dungeoneers, who are dedicated to adding that other dimension to your game. You can find custom 3D printable items through their Facebook and Instagram at Diabolical Dungeoneer, or at their website at www.diabolicaldungeoneer.com. And for a limited time, if you use promo code MIMIC2020, you get 10% off your first order. Uh, Shipping is only available here in the lower mainland of Vancouver, BC, so reach out and inquire through their website. Happy gaming, and always feel free to share photos with us and other D&D communities. Thank you! All right, so... Uh, we've broken down the basic truth of, of the overall concept of, of what a dwarf is, and uh, and it breaks down to really two sub-races. Now, there is a third, and we will talk about them. It's kind of been the elephant in the room. But uh, first and foremost, there's hill dwarves, and there's mountain dwarves. And, uh, and before we get into hill dwarves and mountain dwarves, um, I just want to say... There's also shield dwarves and gold dwarves. Mm -hmm. Now, shield dwarves are essentially mountain dwarves as far as a stat block is concerned. But they come from the north and they are all about uh, the warrior lifestyle. Gold dwarves uh, come from the south. This is in um, in the Forgotten Realms. And they're essentially hill dwarves. And they are uh, uh, merchants in a lot of ways and uh, crafters. And so they're, they're less about the idea of being a warrior and more about um, crafting and selling their goods. And, and your standard day-to-day life dwarves. Um, they also tend to be a little bit more um, magical as a general rule, but shield dwarves can have... Uh, can have spells obviously as well mm-hmm. so um the third one the elephant in the room is a durgar and so we will be talking with them a little bit later so buckle up <laughs> uh but let's let's roll initiative and, and see what we're going to talk about first shall let's we go. all right let's do it got a 12 two fuck's sakes i got a one you got one <laughs> I that's with two ones this episode one from terry one from adam <laughs> i don't want to roll any more dice i'm next <laughs> all right terry what, what do you have hill dwarfs well we were talking before about how dwarves are very proud and they're typically their societies are kind of hidden when we think about the mountains and their strongholds and stuff hill dwarves because yes their strongholds will be built in maybe the foothills of mountains or more hill areas because they're naturally more exposed to the world they are a little bit more open to the world and so because they can't fortify behind mountains they're more likely to make alliances with nearby races that they or communities that they trust so maybe elves maybe humans 
and the, and the reason being for this is because we said before they're they're slow to trust, but once they have that loyalty, that loyalty is 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 hard and fast and stays for generations. So those alliances that they built, they're they're concrete. But initially, of course, they're very suspicious of outsiders, and this is how they protect themselves. Um, so with regards to uh, ability score increases, then uh, your when you pick Hildwarf as your as your subclass, your wisdom score will increase by one. Um, I'm okay with this because dwarves, the hill dwarves, uh, and so because they're more exposed to the outside world, they need to have a little bit more perception, a little bit more wisdom going on of what's around them. So it makes sense for me. Um, they also get dwarven toughness, so your hit point maximum increases by one and and continues to increase by one every time you gain a level. I like this because it's a little bit this more. So over the course of twenty levels, you if you if you if you stay the course um, throughout your campaign, you'll get an additional twenty hit points. Um, mm. But it, it but it. Instead of, I don't think the min-maxing route where it's like, oh, I can have a mega powerful character now. I think, well, this gives me some freedom to maybe take the hill dwarf in a direction like a wizard or a weaker class, uh, where it can be a little bit hardier and I can be a little bit braver with it. Mm. I I agree with you. I look, the wisdom just speaks to the divine caster, right? Like that's what I'm looking for with this um, when it comes to a cleric yep. or a uh, druid or even a ranger with the ranger spells the mm-hmm. wisdom score helps and i'm just yeah. thinking you know for for the druid or the cleric who is going to be a hill dwarf they get the plus two to their constitution score and this in- increase by one your hit points are through the roof if you're going to be a, a light or a life cleric let's say now you really have the ability to take take a little bit of a beating here yeah yeah um be- because you are going to, uh, you're going to be able to get to get in there mixed up with your warhammer. You're going to be able to heal people. You're going to be moving back and forth at, I mean, twenty five feet around. Yeah, not but, as far, but but uh, the wisdom helps your spell save DC and your spell attack um, modifier. And I don't know, I it really does scream. This is the caster kind of dwarf to me. Although it like it really screams ranger as well, right? Yeah. Like through the through the hills. Absolutely. Think about this think about this with the D ten hit die. Yeah, you can make a pretty beefy Yeah, you can have a party ranger there. Yeah. Alright, Brad, what what do you have for us? So I've next? I've got the, I'm talking the mountain dwarf today. Um so your mountain dwarves are they kinda they're the ones who are, you know, when you picture a dwarf that you're picturing a mountain dwarf. They're the ones who are building their strongholds into the sides of mountains. Uh, they're tough. They're strong. Uh, they get uh, bonus or strength score of two. Um, they also get proficiency with light and medium armor. I would like to see heavy armor. I can understand why, for balance reasons, they're probably not doing that. But uh, And the reason I, I say that is because uh, mountain doors tend to be... Uh, they all receive some sort of martial training. Uh, because of the wealth that they're accumulating within their mining operations, within their treasure hoarding, uh, they're frequently uh, susceptible to attacks. There's people who want to come in and take that from them. So every single mountain dwarf receives some sort of martial training uh, to be prepared to use armor and weapons uh, in case of a raid from outsiders. Uh, they tend, because they're building into the side of the mountain, they tend to actually come into a lot of conflict with the uh, Underdark, and you'll cover that in a little bit, and we'll cover that in another episode. Uh, but yeah, they they tend to have a lot of interactions with other people's wanting to take 
what they've collected. Uh, they really revere their miners. So the ones who are digging the tunnels, who are gathering the riches and the valuable metals that are used for creating weapons and armor and for decorations. So they are very much your stereotypical dwarf is the mountain dwarf. I, uh, I, I like the mountain dwarf. You're right. If this is your stereotype. Yeah. Right. There's, I don't have much more to say. No. Everything that we've said about dwarves up to this point um, is true for hill dwarves, but there's also this. But I mean, no, here it is. This is a mountain dwarf. That just that just makes sense. Yeah, I mean, basically everything we discussed in the intro was really aimed more towards mountain dwarves. There's a little bit more fleshing out and a little more variation with your hill dwarves, but your mountain dwarves are very much your base dwarf, in my opinion. Okay. Um, now I went last, um, and it's a good thing because I have Duragar. Lucky you. And Duragar are their own unique beasts. Guys, let me tell you a story. There was a guy, uh, and he was uh he was a dwarf, and he was uh he got it in his head that if he could keep digging down deeper and deeper and deeper, um, he could find more treasure, more uh more ore and precious minerals and materials. And the rest of his clan bought right in, and they were taken with the fervor and obsession, and they dug down so deep for so long that that the weakest member of of their clans, the their weakest members, started to die off from exhaustion. And everybody else just kind of kicked them over into the gutter, pushed them to the side, ignored the corpses, and kept digging. They went straight down, looking for whatever they could, and they got it in their head that this was the way to go about it. And they dug down so far that they ended up kicking open a, a wall and entering into a uh, a chamber. And in the middle of a chamber was a giant floating brain with tentacles. And it was a Mind Flayer colony. And the Mind Flayers had been sending out this psychic message to the dwarves to bring them down here. And they were so weak from all of this digging that they couldn't put up a fight. And the Mind Flayers said, okay, well, you're ours now. And then just fucking enslaved them. And this is how we got Duergar. But Mind Flayers are not the best or most peaceful masters in the world. Um, and they used the opportunity <laughs> to conduct a whole lot of uh, horrible Nazi experiments on the freaking Duergar. And they ended up like magically and surgically altering their brain chemistry. And now the Duragar have psionic abilities. Now there was one particular dwarf here, um, one Duragar, uh, whose name was, uh, I think I'm going to pronounce this properly. Uh, Latiger and Latiger, um, led everyone else in a rebellion and he was given special powers by the one person that he prayed to, which was Asmodeus. That's right. Mm -hmm. The head honcho down in the Nine Hells just said, yeah, you know what? I fucking hate Lolth because Lolth is a demon and she's getting, you know, pretty uppity. And I fucking hate her. You guys need some help. Let's make a deal. I will free you. You guys do everything in your power to undermine Loth and the Drow. And the Duragar just like, look, man, any mass is better than these fucks. <laughs> so 
Yeah. So they they said okay, and and they managed to break free of the mind flayer um, influence, and they got into the underdark where they started to thrive. They're now called gray dwarves mm-hmm. because they are in. They've got gray skin and shock white hair and beards, and uh, Latiger, who was the um, the leader of the group, has actually been granted god status. Um, by Asmodeus now. So uh, they've got a legitimate pantheon all to themselves. And they've been told that they, uh, they've they got really three ways of looking at life. One, our pockets are never full. And what that means is that uh, they are always looking for more uh, items, more wealth. Uh, they will continue to be pushed forward in order to get what they think they believe they're deserved, what they're owed. Our fight is never done. As much as they're looking for treasure and prestige, they're also totally out for bloodshed. They're cruel, they're evil, they're mean, and they want to cut a bitch. And lastly, our resolve is never shaken. What this means is that you cannot show weakness. There's no idea of happiness or trust, or contentedness. If you display this, that is considered weakness. So they are, while other dwarves are stubborn, these guys are cruel. And they will stick to that cruelty as a way of life. Now, these three, um, I guess, tenets of Duragar life make them particularly nasty to deal with, especially because they now have psionic abilities. But they didn't have to go down this route. When they first got free, they went back up to the surface and they asked the dwarves up there. They said, hey, you know, we're, we're free now. Can you please can you please shelter us? Do we have a home up here again? Help us. And the dwarves there were like, no, bitch. Fuck you. Back in the hole. Down you go. <laughs> because apparently and. I don't know where this comes from. Apparently, Moradrin had given them a chance to turn back from their, their greedy ways. And uh, and they said no, back when they were first delving down. And uh, Mordrin, as stubborn and as lawful as everyone else, said, no, you made your choice. So we don't have room for you anymore. That's interesting to me because I don't know if Mordrin's a dick on this. Or not? It seems like a dick move, right? It seems a little bit like a dick move, but if he knew that they were, you know, irredeemable, I mean, the nature of dwarves but, is that it's for the goodness, greater good of the clan, right? Yeah, but I mean, they weren't irredeemable at this point, right? They they, they were, they became irredeemable when they went back down into the darkness to fight on Asmodeus's behalf. So. I don't know. Like this is one of those things where where a god like like the Greek and Norse gods, they were resolute in mm-hmm. their standpoint. There was there was no way that they were going to compromise. Yeah, you so, made your bed, you got to sleep in it. Exactly. Um, now, Durgar also have strongholds down in the uh, in the Underdark. These strongholds are based on like they're essentially fortresses down there, mm-hmm. uh, and they are consistently 
bustling with activity. They are mining. They are digging more tunnels. They're trying to make their area, their little empires, because they've got their own clans down there. They've yep. got their, their empires, um, and they're trying to gain more and more power to take out the drow and the mind flayers. It's a fight on sight for these guys. Yeah. But like everything else down in the Underdark, they're also slavers. And they will find Darrow and, and deep gnomes and surface dwellers that have wandered down here or that weren't paying attention too close to a an opening up on the surface. Uh, they will just kidnap them and turn them into slaves. The, the Durgar have gone from slaves to slavers. Yeah. So this has got to be one of the hardest playable races to actually play and reconcile with the rest of the party. Um, but, but I, I really like them. I think that they're, uh, they're a lot of fun, but they're going to be so rare as adventurers, yeah. especially out on, on the surface of the prime. That, material and that was going right? to be my next question. My question for you as a DM, would you allow a player to play, uh, Dwergar in a campaign that wasn't set in the Underdark? Yeah, absolutely. And here, I'll tell you why. Because while all, while the majority of this information came from Mordenkainer's Tome of Foes um, and from the Monster Manual, um, there is also a little bit in the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, and that's where the stat block is, mm-hmm. is in Skag. And the stat block looks like this. As much as you got all your other Dwarven stuff, on top of that, your strength score increases by one, Yeah, which is half as good as the Mountain Dwarf, right? Yep. Your dark vision is extended to be 120 feet. Up from double, right? Up from 60. Yeah. You can speak, read, and write under common, as well as dwarven and common now. And you have advantage on saving throws against illusion and against being charmed or paralyzed. Which makes sense given the, uh, the history with mind flares. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I think that that they just they've learned now. Anybody that was that was not this is going to be survival of the fittest, right? Anyone yeah. that was not resistant or didn't have an innate ability to kind of hold that back would have been killed or or uh, murdered in these experimentations that were that were committed upon them, right? Yeah. But absolutely. then it gets it gets even more powerful. Remember, you guys essentially had an ability score increase and one other little thing. For your subclasses, right? Proficiency with a couple of types of armor or one hit point every level. Yeah, it was... So far, I've doubled the dark vision, giving you an extra language, giving you advantage on saving throws against illusions, being charmed, and being paralyzed. And when you reach third level, your psionic abilities kick in, and you can cast the enlarge reduce spell on yourself once with this trait. Using yeah. only the enlarge option. So you can just become bigger. When you reach that- fifth level, you can cast the invisibility spell on yourself once with this trait. You That's don't wild. Need ma- you don't need material components for either spell. And you cannot cast them while you're in direct sunlight, which I think is kind of a neat little flavor mm-hmm. thing there. Um, but once if you have it cast upon you, sunlight doesn't affect you. If you do this in the mouth of the cave and then run out into the sunlight, you're fine. Yeah. And you regain the ability to cast these spells uh, with this trait when you finish a long rest. You you technically use intelligence 
for this, but I mean, there's no save or anything here, right? Yeah. So uh, um, now, in reading this, I was reading this earlier. Would you read that as you can once you hit fifth level, you can either do invisibility or enlarge once a day, or you can do each of them once a day. It says you regain the ability to cast these spells. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I with, guess that's a clarification this, at the end. With this trait. So it doesn't say anything about um, this trait being tied to these spells and the trait only triggering once. Yeah. So yeah, you can enlarge once, you can go invisible once. Per day. That's but, pretty powerful. And so this is nuts. This is the most powerful of all of the Dwarven builds at this point. Yeah. By, by a damn sight. Yeah. However, there's a downside. You have sunlight sensitivity, just like Drow. So you have disadvantage on attack rolls uh, and on perception checks that rely on sight when you, the target of your attack, or whatever you're trying to perceive, is in direct sunlight. Yeah. I think uh, I think kobolds have this too, don't they? Sunlight sensitivity. That make it pretty tough to be uh, playing in a campaign where you weren't constantly underground. I mean, every attack roll is a disadvantage pretty well. And, I mean, perception checks, you've probably got somebody else in your party who can do it, but... Yeah, um, now remember, you have uh, you have bonuses on the damage that you do when you're enlarged. The yeah. ability to go invisible to sneak around is going to be helpful. So, um, if you're invisible. So, I see that there's a lot of boons. There's a lot of things that are working in your favor here. But man, I am gonna just try to guys, guys, guys. Can we travel at night, please? Can we travel at night? Yeah. Absolutely. Or hey, you know what? We have a choice of getting on the boat and fighting on the open seas, or going into the haunted castle. I'm gonna, take I'm gonna vote castle. for haunted castle because that's indoors. Yeah. Yeah. You'd really want to know what your campaign was, I think, if you're making a Dwergar as a PC. I like them for Curse of Strahd, or yeah. um, Dungeon of the Mad Mage, or Out of the Abyss. These make a lot of sense. Yeah, into Avernus. Yeah. Um, yeah, but when you get to things like, um, like Storm King's Thunder, yeah, maybe not. No. Right? Um, the Rise of Tiamat, probably no. So, uh, do you guys have any thoughts about, uh, about Durigar? Are they too powered, do you think? They're, I mean, yes, especially if you are able to fight at night and do that. They are incredibly powerful. I mean, visibility for free once a day. Especially if, like, I can see uh, Derrick making a rogue character with one. That'd be pretty handy. Yeah, absolutely. Terry, any thoughts? Yeah, I think they're a great, they're a great character choice, but it just needs to be for the right campaign. Um, it's going to be a session zero discussion where if this is something you really want to play, it just needs to be the right time and place. Otherwise, it's just not going to work for the the group. You run the risk of pissing a lot of people off, or or it can be amazing. It just needs to be needs to be the right game. This isn't, you know, you can't just show up to the table like you would a, a mountain dwarf cleric or something. It's probably yeah. going to be just fine. This is a this is a discussion beforehand, and I don't even think just with the DM. I think with everybody for this one. I mean, they're they're lo- evil by nature, right? So you also have to take that into account. Yeah, yeah, but I even things like that. I I like to twist things like that. I don't like it when you know it, it's good and evil. Well, you know what? You get enslaved. You get pushed underground. You get beaten. You get pushed down. You get told you're never allowed going back to the surface again. We'll see how a person is after that. I mean, I've been in isolation for three weeks. I feel like a Duragar myself right now. You know, so. <laughs> hair's gone white. Yeah, skin's gone gray. 
Exactly. You need a better skincare program, my friend. Um, Yeah, the other thing that I would say, just to point out, is that you can't enlarge and go invisible at the same time, because they're both concentration spells. Right. That's a good catch. So, um, and it doesn't say anything about casting invisibility um, at higher levels. So... Um, uh, yeah, I would assume it's just its base level. It's uh, it's for yourself only. So, all right. Well, let's uh, let's cut to a quick shout out. Hey everyone, it's Adam here with another quick little shout out for one person that I talk to on a semi regular basis on Instagram. Uh, he's one of the better dungeon masters out there that I've listened to in actual plays in the past, and he's got a fun Instagram page. And he, of course, is married to our good friend Pepperina Sparkle Gem. Uh, this is DM Zion. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. DM Zion. It's DM underscore Z or Z if you're American. I U N N. So, again, this guy is a great source of information. I know that he's got published stuff up on DMs Guild. He is a wonderful um, dungeon master and he's really fun to talk to and be around. Knowledgeable, creative. He's really crafty about stuff in the good way. Like, he makes crafts, not like. He's sly like a fox. I don't know, maybe he's sly like a fox. He, he, I, I feel like he could be. Anyway, if you're on Instagram and you're not following him, you should, because he's absolutely phenomenal, and he's one of the better people on there that I know that I've spoken to. He can be found again at DM underscore Z-I-U-N-N, that's two N's, or if you speak the proper Queen's English, it's DM underscore Z-I-U-N-N. Anyway, let's get back to the main conversation, shall we? All right, guys. Now, the part that we're all the most excited for are unique character builds. Mm. And I'm going to spend, I'm going to bet money. Brad, are you just going to talk about your own player character? I am not. No, Dan shut it out in the cleric episode. I've shut it out. I feel like it's been covered enough. Cool, 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 cool. Good. I'm interested to hear these. So uh, let's grab our dice. Let's roll initiative. And I want to hear the unique, crazy build that that you would do uh, with your subclass. That's a 12 for me. 17. Fuck off, I got another one. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was next. I dodged the bullet. Uh, You're first, Terry. Yeah. With the 17. Okay, one non-standard character build for me. Adam, you touched on it earlier that we don't see this very often with dwarf bards. But for me, I think a dwarf bard would be great. Now, I don't mean in the sense of your typical kind of minstrel or an actor or anything, but more I would lean into like a politician. So like a, a proud, sort of loyal... Uh, like, I imagine, like, the, you know, the politician that aligns with the union to get jobs at the shipyard, and I'll take this to Congress. Like, I feel like, you know, stands by their people. I feel like this kind of bard. And so it's, it's, it's their words that they use. That's their kind of, their bardic power, if you will. That's their, their, their performance. Um, but stands by their, by their people as a dwarf would, um, and, and is kind of, is not necessarily so, um, so, physical and combat effective as some dwarves can be say if they were like a war cleric or something but more is realized that like the pen is mightier than the sword and we can show our strength now pride our loyalty now unity in another way i really like that i, I think that's a lot I of fun yeah, you can definitely have a lot of fun with that it's definitely a twist yeah. i always had a hard time reconciling because i could always almost every class i could justify having for a uh dwarf but yeah bard is a tough one because they're not usually your typical they're not, no, but it all depends. Well, that's it. I don't see them in tights playing the loot, uh, playing no. the loot, but I definitely see them, uh, you know, marching up the hill to take this to the boys in Congress. If this is bullshit, you know, I kind of see that. All right. No, I, I, no, sorry. I think that that's that that's 
really fantastic. What uh, what class would you put this? Like, like I know. Uh, sorry, what subclass? Um, well, I just went like, with Hilldwarf because your wisdom increases, and so you're likely going to lean on that. No, no, but which which bardic subclass would oh, you pick? Oh, sorry. I don't know. I didn't get that far with it. Because then I'm getting down <laughs> to like the nitty-gritty of it, as opposed to this is more just like the idea of, of who the person is, not like, okay, like mechanically, which way should I go? Yeah, I, I like that for uh, for a character. <laughs> I love the idea of the, the union leader that is just out there arguing for for better rights for the miners. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just yeah, so... Absolutely. It's so even in Canadian politics, you get like this. Like you can just imagine, like Trudeau with his like his top two buttons undone, and his shirt sleeves are rolled up, like he's looking like he's mucking in with the boys. It's kind of like that. Yeah, no, I like that. I'm yeah, kind of the uh, the the people's politician. Yeah, exactly. All right, Brad, what what do you have? So I really was thinking about the classes that I wouldn't normally put with uh, with a dwarf, and I came up with the uh, druid as one. But the more I thought about it, the more it made sense. I mean, these these are men who live in the mountains, men and women who live in the mountains. I mean, they're they are one with nature, but not in the way we think of you know the trees and the butterflies and the all is nice with the world. They're tough, they're durable, and so I'm picturing a druid, uh, probably some. I was thinking something like a circle of the shepherd druid, but he would be one of the uh, one of the kind of rangers or the scouts for the uh, dwarves. He would be a he would be out roaming the mountains looking for threats that could be coming in. Um, and he would be going ahead of the dwarves basically to protect the clan. So he would definitely be on the adventurer's path, but he's looking for ways to keep the greater threats out before they can even have a chance to make an attack on the stronghold. I like it. Even for me, that's something I would discuss with the DM of, okay, well, you know, we're not necessarily conjuring woodland beasts, but can we conjure mountain beasts here and play with it a little I bit? Mean, can I get my my uh, clan of mountain goats to appear? I mean, there's tons of them. I mean, you got black bear at CR one half, right? You got bloodhawks are technically in mountains. Yeah. Um. Right. You you actually have a lot of options. Uh. You know, cave badgers, badgers, things like that. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a ton of options for mountain beasts, even at low CRs that you could be using. Absolutely. I think that's that's a load of fun. I really like that. Yeah. And I just love the idea of the crazy dwarf druid, like, standing naked on top of the mountain during the storm, like, screaming to their god. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, they're in tune with the nature. Yeah, this. I mean, this guy's almost wild and feral. I like the idea of this This dwarf that everybody knows by name, like, protects the mountain from outsiders yep. as, like, the first, you know, uh, first line of defense, but nobody ever really sees them. You know, you might just hear the screams like echoing through the wind, almost like a kind of fairy tale. Yeah, I like that. I would definitely have him with a, like a folk hero background where people know his name. He is the one who is. Yeah. And if he ever has to come into town, like the other dwarves are a little bit wary of him. Yeah. They have a lot of respect because they understand what who he is and what he is. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he's definitely more wild and primal than a dwarf would typically be. I also like the idea of, I mean, a druid is going to have, like, mold earth and stuff, so yep. um, he would be out and like out on the other side of the mountain creating this, these statues and stuff, but he's not using his hands to do it, he's using magic. That's right. Mm-hmm. And how would the other dwarves feel about that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That was definitely part of the character that I envisioned was, that, you know, there's this conflict. Blessing? Sorry? Is that a blessing from Moradrin, or is it is it blasphemy that you're not using your hands? I think it would be blasphemy. Do you know which way I'd go with this, Brad, actually? Is I would yeah. do this as a Duragar who's trying to win redemption. 
And but they won't they won't allow him back into the stronghold, but they'll say you can protect us from out there. This is almost like a Quasimodo type idea. It's like to watch over the city or watch over the stronghold, but you do it from over there because we won't accept you in here. Interesting. I like that twist. Mm, yeah, yeah, I like that too. Yeah, I was, I was definitely picturing a mountain dwarf, but I could totally see that playing in. All right, guys. For mine, bear with me on this. I want to go... My plan is to go 16 levels of monk, four levels of barbarian. 16 monk, four barbarian? Yep, I want all of the speed. I like the idea of, of a Duragar running across the freaking ceiling at like 65 feet in a round. Just That's like terrifying. And then jumping down. As he's jumping down, he enlarges and as he rages. And what I've just done is given you guys the Incredible Hulk. Oh, yeah. Because he goes he goes up a, a size level, like a yep. size category. And he gets additional damage with his unarmed strikes, which are already doing a shit ton of damage. Mm-hmm. And I'd probably go uh, way of the open hand. Oh, so all fantastic. of his crazy unarmed strikes and everything else. I just think that that's so ridiculously fun and and over the top insane. And I would you go Battle Rager for the uh, Barbarian? Or? Oh, definitely. Because we didn't touch Absolutely. on that, right? Absolutely. The class Ab- race specific. Well... No, 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 I wouldn't because with them, it's all about the armor they wear. So I think that I would probably do, uh, ooh, let's see, Path of the Zealot, maybe. Yeah. I love Path of the um, Ancestral Guardian for a dwarf, but actually, not for this actually, one. Actually, you know what? This is one of the handful of times that I would go with the uh, the Berserker. With the yeah, Berserker would be reason- to, good. to just go absolutely nuts with this character, to go over the top, crazy bullshit, every once in a while, once a day. I'm just going to lose my shit. I'm going to pick up that orc and I'm going to beat the other orcs with it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So I just, I just love this short little gray old, and people just look at him and be like, if they're not familiar with Durgar, they're just like, Hey, look, look at the old dwarf. <laughs> look at him. It's like, don't, don't mess with mm-hmm. me. Yeah. I like that touch I, of making oh, him old. I also like the idea of him being a monk. So like he just sits there in, he only wears pants. He's barefoot, and he sits there cross-legged and waits for the enemy. Roll initiative. I sit down and I meditate. <laughs> and I and just like, as the arrows come flying in, I deflect them back at the other people. Right? And then I will go invisible. And then I will run across the freaking ceiling and become visible as I enlarge, dropping down on top of them. Yeah. Right? Like, That's pretty fantastic. I, I like... Uh, yeah, I'm ha- I'm having a lot of fun with this character. I want the, the Duragar monk barbarian. Now, where are you getting a Duragar monastic tradition from? How are you picturing the backstory on that? Uh, look, it's hard to be an adventurer for Duragar, right? You yeah. got to go out and you have to do your own thing. I think that what you are doing is you have uh, shunned the ways of slavery, right? We were slaves and now we slave others. That doesn't sit right with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to go out into the world and I am going to, with all of my cruelty and my stoicism, I am going to wreak havoc and make a name for my kind. And mm. we will let, we will let Moradin's children know that they fucked up. They, they picked the and wrong I, guy. I, yeah. I think that he, he, instead of doing the, the Asmodeus uh, fight against Loth and the drow, he's focused on. Um, on undermining, I think that he's a serial killer that murders dwarves. Jeez, I love it. Me too. So, I mean, obviously an evil character, but yeah. But there we are. Very interesting. So, guys, 
Any final thoughts on on dwarves? Do you like them more or less now that we've talked about them? I don't think I could like them anymore, but I've got some new build ideas. I like them more because I think what we're exploring here is just moving away from those. I try not to say the word tropes very often because Dan likes to say it three times every ten minutes. Uh, but I like to shy away from the... I think we're moving away from the tropes here because we're getting a little bit more creative because dwarves is one of those races where it's like, yeah, it is what it is. They're a cleric or you know, maybe a fighter or maybe a barbarian. I think we can do more with this. I think we just got to get a little bit more creative. And uh, and uh, no, I like them more because it's, it's opening my eyes a little bit. Yeah, I, I still love the standards. Standards with the dwarves—they have their tropes well, for a reason. I love them, but yeah, there's definitely room to be creative with them if you're not feeling it. Yeah, I I hear you. There's a the the tropes are, I mean, they're obviously classic for a reason. Yes, and they're not overplayed the way that some of the elves and the super edge lord drow. Yeah, that's true. Is overplayed. Right, so I don't mind that, but I'm I'm with Terry. There are there's a lot of room to explore different things yeah. with dwarves. Brad, do you guys have any role play tips before we wrap this up? I just want to say real quick, I love Brad's idea. I just imagine this storm raging over a mountain, this druid, naked, screaming, but he is the like you know the person that defends the stronghold. I love it. Um, yes, I do. I do have a quick role play tip for for dwarves. Um, and I don't want this to come across as arrogance, not on my part, but on their part, is that when they 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 interact with what I would call like younger races, I guess, like humans, for example, mm-hmm. where they don't live as long, is I think that they would not talk down to humans, but would also talk to them like they're almost talk to them a little bit like they're children, not like they're stupid. But it's just that, you know, we humans, we live a short life. There's really only 30 to 40 years in our lives where we really make an impact on the world, right? You know, you start, you get to about the age of 30, that's when you can start making an impact. But by the time you're 65, that's kind of gone away. And, you know, now you're just a senior off to the side. And so the, the amount of things that we try to do in that time and how really how juvenile we can be compared to these dwarves that would live for 400 years generations going thousands of years back that are all aligned on the same principle that have all learned the same lessons unlike humans where it's like every different community of humans thinks differently has a different god hasn't learned the same lessons yet um you know is is hell-bent on legacy but doesn't learn the, the lessons of the past i feel like they would um interact with humans as though they were just a, a little bit a little bit uh simpler or, or rather just not educated yet um, and so they may talk to them with some patience, um, and and I think that should be put across in your role play. In the, I don't think you're going to talk to the the human fighter like you're equal. You're more going to talk to them like they're uh, like a teenager that hasn't quite learned all of the life lessons yet. Yeah, I dig that. Um, my my RP tip would be kind of in line with that. But we talked about how dwarves are distrustful of other races. Yeah. That doesn't mean that they're completely disrespectful, right? They have tact. They have some... A lot of people like to play that brash dwarf. Your dwarf doesn't have to be abrasive and rude. He may not trust these other people. He might not tell them everything that they need to know right off the bat. But they do have tact. They do know... I mean, they've lived long enough lives, especially the adventurers. They know how to deal with the other races. Yeah. Um, yeah, now, I, I like the, the idea... I yeah. like the idea of... of you're right. They, they don't have... It's not that they don't have tact. It's just that they would sit there and they say, "Oh, that's how you do it." Well, the way the dwarves do it is we do it this way. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Their and ways are their ways are certainly like gonna be better. They're not gonna fall for something like shorter. It sounds like a criticism. Either. Yeah. Right. Like it's it sounds like a criticism, but it isn't. 
it's them just saying, no, we have, we've got a better way. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a this. better way of doing this. Let's just do it my way because it's going to work. Yeah. we've tr- I've lived long enough to know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's always the ta- trick of the table, right? You don't want to be... I mean, at the end of the day, you're playing with other people, even if you're playing a character. Yeah. And so I, you need to you need to have some tact and some... And it's like... And I le- think dwarves are that. It's like the lessons they've learned, they've learned to be true. So it's like a human could be like, oh, well, I know loyalty. It's like, you don't know loyalty. You've only been around for this long. The person that you said that you're loyal to has only been around for this long. Like, you yeah. haven't... Every four years, you change your leadership. You know, if we're talking in, like, our world, I think. Like, you don't know mm-hmm. loyalty. And and I think they would they would view these values much differently to the other races. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. On, also on that note, just before you go, Adam, um, once a dwarf does trust somebody, right? We discussed how they're trust, distrustful of outsiders. Once you gain the trust of a dwarf, you have it. Yeah. And you have it for life, and it's going to take a lot to break that. And I see that being passed down through generations. So if your dwarf, or if, sorry, you have a human character, but your mother had this relationship with a dwarf that she ran into and they had a long friendship, I think that dwarf would take you under their wing when your mother passes away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And I think because here's another thing as well, when, when races live for so long that we don't realize, is they're going to have a lot more generations that are around. So if, the, yep. if you live for 400 years, but you start, you know, procreating, you know, whatever they do, 50 or something like that, maybe a little bit younger, your great-great-great-grandfather is still going to be alive in that time. Yeah. Right, so it's like they have many more generations. They have much. These these values are instilled over multiple generations, as opposed to just being like, "Oh, I just found out on Ancestry.ca that my uh, great grandfather was a whatever, but I didn't know him." You definitely mm-hmm. would with this race, absolutely, Adam. I I ha- I have to agree with everything that you guys said. My big thing that I would say, as far as role playing goes, is just because dwarves are stubborn does not mean you have the opportunity to frustrate. It doesn't mean that you have the right to frustrate the other people around the table. Yeah. You can very easily say, well, he's lawful. Good. So I would say, no, you can't kill that bandit. Or, you know, I'm I'm lawful evil if I'm a Duragar. Therefore, I'm going to murder everybody by my rules. You you still have to work with the party. Yeah. Yeah. Don't be a dick. And I've seen that with dwarves too, right? Where, no, this is my dwarven tradition and this is the only way that I'm going to do this. Yeah. Right, but you're out adventuring as an ambassador, as as an emissary out to the other world, to to the rest of the world with other cultures, and you would know better than this. Yeah, when in Rome. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. so, yeah, that there's just that, and the fact, I mean, to just further drive home Terry's point about the uh, the age difference, by the time that dwarves are fifty years old, when they turn fifty. Humans are coming to the end of their life, especially in this pseudo medieval, yeah, um, yeah, like lifestyle that that D and D gives us, right? So therefore, when dwarves are just becoming adults, humans are are not just reaching the end; they've reached it. Yeah, yeah. So the the idea that every human is a child is an interesting one. That is, yeah, there's room to play with that. And Dragonborn. And there are others that have the same lifespans as well, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. there's definitely room to play with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I touched on this in the Artificer episode. Give your dwarf 
a Bostonian accent, I think that'd be fantastic. <laughs> harsh. Harsh <laughs> consonants, right? So, yeah. Wicked harsh. <laughs> All right, guys. That's it for this episode on Dwarves. Next time we circle back to discussing D&D races, we'll be looking at the blank slates of the Dungeons & Dragons people's humans. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as dozens of other podcast apps. You can also find us at www.itsamimic.com or email us at info at Thanks for listening to the It's a Mimic podcast, and make sure to check us out next week when we're going back to, to, cut, to cover rogues again. You've reached the end of another episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. Connect with us at itsamimic.com. Don't forget to subscribe and hit those share buttons. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. All right, so we spent the entire episode talking about dwarves. We've established that they're good at stonework, metalwork, gemcraft. Elves are good at poetry, music, and agriculture. Gnomes are good at invention, deductions, and experimentation. What stereotype would you add to a D&D race if you could? Do you guys want to roll initiative? Uh, yeah, let's roll initiative. Sure, let's do it. I got 15. 10. I got a five. Oh, we went in increments of five. Okay, Terry, you're up first. I get to go first. I went first uh, a lot in the last one. Um, I think I'm going to go with humans here um, for my race of choice because I don't think it's made clear enough the things that that humans are are known for. You know, like we have all of the stuff for dwarves and elves, but I think humans generally were were very well known for exploration, right? We're curious. We don't think we have all of the answers yet, so we're constantly exploring and also constantly innovating but i mean differently to how gnomes are gnomes yeah they 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 tinker and they experiment but it's it's not to expand themselves right it's not it's not for a legacy purpose as our form of innovation is um i think out of all of the races uh business trade networking i think these things are are typical of humans as well i think this comes with exploration as well as it will set up trade routes and we'll expand as opposed to dwarves that are very proud of where and same with elves are very proud of where they are they have their amazing place we're going to stay here this is our place we like to set up trade routes we like to innovate and we like to explore so i think these are the traits that uh, i would like to see put across with humans more that was that's actually really good really good that's yeah, that was tight. You you came prepared today, Terry. He did. <laughs> Mine feels pretty cheap after this, uh, but since I rolled a 10, I'm going to go second. Uh, mine was super shallow. I would just picture Goliaths as always being only drinking beer. That's all they drink because they can't get drunk. I picture them like Andre the Giant, right? He just can't, like, he would go through, what, 60 beer in a day and not get totally hammered? Yeah. That's what I want my Goliaths to be. I want them to only drink liquor. <laughs> and be unable to get drunk at any point, no matter how much they drink, just because their body metabolizes the alcohol so fast. <laughs> and they're, like, searching for a strong enough alcohol that they can actually get drunk. Uh, all right, so so any liquor then? just Not just beer, though? Not just beer. I mean, they would probably have to drink, like, an entire cask of hard liquor to get the equivalent of a shot. That's the way I like to picture my Goliaths. I, I, see, Terry's Terry had the right answer, and now and now we're just getting sillier and sillier. That's right. I, that's my, why I felt bad following that up, but I stand by it. <laughs> well, well, hold on, because mine's even worse. Oh no. Um, yeah, I think that uh, Kenku and Arakakra are just are just dirty creatures. Oh, I think for that sure. They, that the stereotype should be that they've got mites, and that they um, just like 
They always wear skirts because, you know, birds don't have a sphincter, right? That's why they just shit all the time everywhere. Yeah, it just kind of falls out when it falls out. Yeah, so they're always wearing skirts and kilts. I didn't and know I that. And I think the same is, is That's true. That's the same for... reason that Scottish people wear kilts, though, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have sphincters. Now, we'll have to check that. But I found the Englishman. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But I picture, uh, I don't. I don't know about Eric Hoker. They feel, seem pretty proud. I think they spend a lot of time grooming, but naturally, I think they would be dirty, dirty creatures if they don't spend a lot of time taking care of themselves. No, no, no. no. I think they're proud because they don't get shit on because they're so far above. Oh, whereas the lesser <laughs> earthbound creatures. There's got to be a certain it's amount like, of pride to be the ones dropping shit on, on your heads. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. I- that gives a great idea for an Eric Coco character, but let's not get too sidetracked. Yeah. You, you don't want to park your horse and cart underneath the Eric Coco mountain, that's for sure. <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs> <laughs>